Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. This is episode number 200, 200 episodes that we're in. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host. I'm here with Bishop Barron, who's been with us for, I think, basically every episode. We've shared some talks and other things. But Bishop, first of all, 200 episodes, that means we've been talking for almost 100 hours. What do you I think know. of that? <laughs> well, poor Brandon, I'd say. Um, no, it's amazing. I remember vividly our first one because i was down at my uh room in la it was, i just gotten it was here the day after you were made a bishop do you remember that's that? right yeah yeah and i had i'd forgotten that detail but i remember sitting at my desk there in my in my room down in la and we did the first uh podcast because you had said hey this is an idea we could maybe you know take something you've written but talk about it in more detail and I, oh yeah okay that's a good idea and that was when i was still in chicago right and then we make this big transition so 200 no it's hard for me to believe 200 episodes many. nearly 8 million downloads to date so lots to celebrate and, and lots of thanks to all of our listeners i know you guys have been listening religiously not to use a pun several people have emailed me that said i've listened to all the episodes twice i thought oh wow god bless we you know, for that i would I didn't think about this, but that means we've been very consistent doing them once a week because yeah. I've been here for four years. So we got 200 episodes, like 50 a year, right? Yep. So we're basically every week. I'm, I'm, not sure kind of I'm not sure we've missed a week. Yeah. So quite yeah, proud of that. Amazing. Hey, yeah. here's another benchmark that we just crossed too. The letter to a suffering church book, which you wrote to address the sexual abuse crisis. We decided to donate all of the proceeds to charities uh, serving victims of sexual abuse, but that book has now been distributed over a million times, a million copies have now reached Catholics in the pews. I assume you're equally excited about that. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, you, I think, said it, Brandon, when, when that book first was coming out, I just finished it, and you said, I, I think we'll sell a million copies of this. And and I thought, oh, well, be great if we do, but I was kind of skeptical. But yeah, we've gone beyond the million mark of sales. Um, so yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. At the same time, I'm always aware how how kind of grim the book is, like a grim the topic is, and it's not like a, a moment of celebra celebration, I suppose. But still, I'm happy that the book has been widely distributed and has been, I hope, thought-provoking for a lot of Catholics. And more than thought-provoking, as you know, the purpose of that book is, is to encourage Catholics to stay and fight, that this is not the moment to be leaving the church, but to be staying and to... Um, resolve to to fight for it you know so that's my deepest hope with that book if you don't have your copy yet we still have some left you can get them at sufferingchurchbook.com you can get a free individual copy you just cover the shipping and handling and we also are offering them uh to parishes you can order a big bulk amount for a very low price so sufferingchurchbook.com okay bishop the purpose of this episode is to help all of us make sense of the major theological trends and camps in the church today, which have emerged since Vatican II. I, yeah. I realized this recently, uh, reflecting on some of the recent Word on Fire show episodes, we throw around a lot of names and a lot of schools and terms and things, but it, it's hard to fit all these together into a coherent structure. And so I, I was hoping you could help us make sense of all of these theologians and schools just floating out there. Um, so, before we get to Vatican II, let's move back just a little bit and start with Vatican I. Yeah. What happened at that council and how did it set the stage for what was coming? Yeah, you know, we could go back to the beginning of time, I suppose, trying to understand the flow of ideas. But I think it's, it's helpful to begin with Vatican I. So 1870, uh, Vatican I in response to a lot of the um, both political but, but also uh, ideological movements of that time. 
Vatican I was a sophisticated council. Um, a lot of important people were there. Uh, the writers of the documents were at, at a high level. I like the text of Vatican I. The, only a few because it was a truncated council. You know, the Franco-Prussian War broke out, and so the bishops all kind of scattered. But uh, what we have of Vatican I are, are, are great texts. I'd qualify it, Brandon, uh, kind of ideologically speaking, as a nuanced, careful, smart, no to much of modernity. So think now of Hegel, Kant, um, Marx especially, and the church responding to these uh, uh, streams of thought with, with a, again, a careful, nuanced, but, but pretty clear no. Now, go right after Vatican I. So Pope Pius IX, who called it, dies in 1878, and he's succeeded by this extraordinary man who takes the name Leo XIII, a great pope for a lot of reasons. But Leo XIII certainly would have affirmed Vatican I, would have affirmed this great no, if you want. But I think at the same time, he felt the church needs to say more than simply no to modernity. It's got to find a way within its own intellectual heritage to uh, engage the modern. And so very early on, just about a year after he was elected Pope, he writes an encyclical, extremely influential, called Eterni Patris. In that, he calls for a renewal of Catholic intellectual life at all levels. And he calls upon one of the great figures within the Catholic intellectual tradition to do it, namely Thomas Aquinas. He could have chosen Augustine, whom he names in the, in the letter. He could have chosen Bonaventure, whom he names and praises. He could have chosen um, St. Robert Bellarmine. As we tape these words today, he's the patron saint. But he didn't. He chose St. Thomas Aquinas to do it. And, and I think for good reason. He saw Thomas as deeply biblical, deeply patristic, clearly grounded in the great tradition, the common doctor of the church, and someone who demonstrated a great breadth of mind and spirit, who dialogued very creatively with the environing culture of his own time, who reached out to pagan scientists and Jewish rabbis and Islamic scholars, etc. I think he saw in that combination something very powerful, that Thomas would be the mastermind to guide our engagement of the modern. So I go back to Vatican I and then the immediate aftermath of Leo XIII to see what kind of set the tone for the Catholic intellectual life into the 20th century. So Pope Leo recommends Thomas Aquinas as the pinnacle theologian. Education should be shaped around Thomistic theology and philosophy. What emerged from that before Vatican II? Was there like one stream of Thomism? Did it break off into different versions? What did that look like? I'll oversimplify a little bit here, but um, we have one strain of it, and they all come out of Leo XIII, all of this. One strain, I'd associate it with um, uh, the famous figure, uh, Reginald Garigou Lagrange, who was a Dominican professor at the Angelicum, the kind of flagship school of the Dominican order in Rome, from 1909 until 1960. So over 51 years, this figure taught at the Angelicum, shaped generations of thinkers who then became professors and seminary teachers, etc. right? So a very important figure. I'd associate with him a sort of strict, rationalistic, somewhat ahistorical, very deductive, and somewhat defensive reading of Thomas Aquinas. Now, I don't mean that to dismiss him. I like Gary Grange. I read him to this day with pleasure, right? But he represents a certain type of Thomism. Call it less culturally engaged, right? More defensive. 
over and against that, there emerges other types of Thomism. So again, all influenced by, by Leo the Thirteenth. Think now of the transcendental Thomism, so-called. Uh, go back to people like, like Rousselot, who died in World War I. Come up to someone like Joseph Maréchal, um, taught at Louvain for many years. Then the people they influenced, Karl Rahner, Bernard Lonergan, above all. What are these people doing? They're Thomas, but they're trying to show how Thomas can be in a creative dialogue with Kant and with those streams of thought that come up out of Immanuel Kant. Think, too, of um, phenomenological Thomism. So a figure like um, Dietrich von Hildebrand comes to mind. Not a Garigou Lagrange uh, sort of conservative Thomas, but Thomas in dialogue with Edmund Husserl, the founder of modern phenomenology. A friend of von Hildebrand's, Max Scheler, doing a kind of moral theology based upon this approach. Here's an interesting connection. There's a young Polish uh, priest who, after World War II, is sent to Rome for his studies. He studies under Garigou Lagrange at the Angelicum in Rome. But then when he comes home to do his second doctorate, he writes on Max Scheler, who's the phenomenological Thomist. I'm talking, you probably know, about Karol Wojtyla, who eventually becomes Pope John Paul II. Shaped by Garigou Lagrange Thomism, but also shaped by this much more kind of creative, culturally engaged Thomism. What else is going on? Well, you've got existential Thomism, people like Etienne Gilson uh, in dialogue with uh, Gabriel Marcel. You've got someone like Jacques Maritain, who's a you know deeply traditional Thomist, but also interested in the dialogue with contemporary politics, who's a friend of Saul Alinsky you know, and, and social action, who is, is active in writing of the UN Declaration on Human Rights, 1948. All Thomists, but not Garigou Lagrange type Thomists. Now, let me add a few more complicating factors. I'm, I'm moving a bit out of the ambit of Thomism here, but the so-called Nouvelle Theologie, right? The new theology, people like Henri de Lubac, people like Jean Danielou. These figures were going back to the Bible and the church fathers. And if they were reading Thomas, as they indeed were, they tended to read him through a patristic uh, church father's uh, lens. Look at the liturgical movement before the council. People like Romano Guardini, Carl Adam. In our country, people like Reynold Hillenbrand, D, um, Godfrey Diekman, uh, whom I met when he was an old, old man and I was a, a young priest. Anyway, the liturgical movement's going on, right? So there's, there's all of this ferment, I would say, in the years prior to Vatican II, all of it, in a way, coming from Vatican I and Leo XIII, but splitting into, roughly speaking, these two camps of a more conservative and a more culturally engaged uh, form. So all of these bishops and theologians from all of these various camps converge under Rome in 1961, 1962, 62 for, 62, starts, for yeah. the Second Vatican Council what happens with this clash of ideas and clash of theologies? Well, you know, it's interesting, Brandon, because some people think, okay, before the council, it was just this sort of monolithic, you know, conservative. That's not true. I mean, there, there was this conservative Thomism, and it was backed up uh, institutionally in many ways. But as I've been describing, there was this enormous creativity and ferment and discussion and dialogue. I think, roughly speaking again here, I, I'm oversimplifying, but at Vatican II, under the aegis of John the 23rd, of course, who's got a very interesting role to play if we could talk about him some other time, but under his aegis, 
all these forces sort of come together at Vatican II. And if you want to put it this way, they do battle. Because now, Gary Lagrange himself was, was in his dotage at that time. He wasn't involved. But someone like Cardinal Ottaviani, who was the head of the Holy Office at the time, would have represented that point of view and, and many people with him. They, they did battle, you might say, in the, in the salon and the classrooms and in the, in the churches and so on at Vatican II and on the floor of the council to some degree. The debates happened. And then we have these great texts of Vatican II that I think it's very fair to say, whether it's Lumen Gentium, Gaudium et Spes, Dignitatis Humanae, um, uh, Sacrosatum Concilium on the liturgy, they represent the victory of the Nouvelle Theologie stream over the more conservative Gargou Lagrange uh, stream. Go online, uh, you can check it, the, the vote totals for these various documents. It wasn't close. <laughs> these were not close elections. They'd be like, 2,348 to four, you know, would be the <laughs> vote counts. My point there is if as a Catholic, you believe the Holy Spirit is operative in the deliberations and votes of a council, I think it's pretty clear which side of this won the day. Now, I'm, I'm on purpose avoiding the language of liberal conservative because it's right away misleading. Let's say the uh, Nouvelle Theologie versus the Garigou Lagrange. If I want to put it that way, the Nouvelle Theologie, I think, clearly won at Vatican II. Okay, then sketch for us what happens after Vatican II in each of these two different streams. See, because this is also interesting because one way that people to the present day have read things is, okay, Vatican II happened. I kind of get it. These two uh, uh, schools fought, and the and the one of them won. Okay, end of argument. Liberals won, conservatives lost. Okay, if you're Vatican II, you're you're a liberal. Well, okay, too simplistic because almost immediately, almost immediately, the great victorious camp split. So go back to like the 1965, 66, council just ended. A journal is formed, it's called Concilium. And the purpose of the journal, stated in the, in the opening uh, edition, was to perpetuate the great spirit of the concilium, of the council. These were council men, right? And they loved the council. They believed in it, and they wanted to perpetuate its spirit. On that board of concilium, you have, among others, Hans Küng, Edward Skilebex, Karl Rahner, Henri de Lubach, Jean Danielou, Josef Ratzinger, um, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, Bernard Lonergan, all of the major players of Vatican II, the victorious party. So you don't have Cardinal Ottaviani on this board, right? It's all the victors. Okay. But almost immediately, by the end of the 60s, a few years later, already a rift uh, occurs. As certain members of the Concilium board, and they were on it, break with it. And they form a new journal that represents a um, what, to their mind, is the correct reading of Vatican II. Now, here I'm talking about especially the three founders, Josef Ratzinger, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and Henri de Lubach. Councilmen, you bet. Balthasar wasn't there personally, but, I mean, councilmen, absolutely. Garigou Lagrange men, absolutely not. In fact, de Lubach, at the height of his powers, Right when he was the height of his career, silenced for ten years by by the Holy Office in Rome, 
these are not friends of, of preconciliar Catholic conservatism. Councilmen. But they felt that the mainstream of the concilium board was moving in a problematic direction. How do they put it? They said, well, several things. One is they were no longer embracing Vatican II and the texts of Vatican II. Following the famously amorphous spirit of Vatican II, they were actually anticipating Vatican IV. <laughs> you know what I mean? That they were going so far beyond the texts of the council. Now, I grew up with this church. I know all about that, you know. Furthermore, they claimed that the theologians form a separate magisterium. So there's the magisterium of the Pope and bishops, but then there's this other magisterium of, of the theologians. And Baltazar, Ratzinger, and Delubach said, no, no, that's not right. There's only one magisterium. But then thirdly, and I think most interestingly, they said, they want to perpetuate the spirit of the council. And that's a bad idea. <laughs> and the argument is this. The church at rare moments in its history, so only 20 times, right, in 2,000 years, so rarely, the church feels obligated to pause, to, as it were, throw itself into suspense and decide some important issue about its inner life or about its, you know, theology or something. Necessary? Uh-huh. But once that resolution's done, the church should eagerly turn from a council to get back to its great work. If we perpetuate the spirit of a council, any council, the church is, as it were, in permanent suspense. It's, well, we're constantly debating who we are and what we believe, what we ought to do. There's a, there's a hand-wringing quality about a church that's perpetually in council. They said, no, thank God for the council, but now it's time to get back to work, which means what? Now look at their journal that they found. Communio. The communio of the Trinity reflected in the communio of the world, of nature and creation, reflected in the communio of the life of the church. That that's what we're finally about. So these three break off and form their own journal, uh, communio. And I think it represents, if you want to put it this way, the splitting of the victorious party into a more liberal or more conservative of camp. So that split between Comunio and Concilium takes us to roughly the early 1970s. Yeah. How do things play out then through the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI? Well, uh, the emergence of John Paul II is very interesting, isn't it? Um, John Paul II, who was a councilman, he was there as a young Archbishop of Krakow. He was a colleague of Henri de Lubach, admired him greatly, met Ratzinger at the council, helped to write Gaudi Mitzpez, his councilman. But it's fair to say, Karl Wojtyla did not go the Skilebeck's uh, Kung Rahner route. He went with the de Lubach, Baltazar, Ratzinger uh, position. Notice, please, when he becomes Pope in 1978, whom does he honor and elevate? Ratzinger, he makes him his head of CDF, right? Baltazar, he names a cardinal. De Lubach, he names a cardinal. Who, by the way, whom does he censure? But almost right away, Hans Kung, he takes away his license to teach Catholic theology 
Edward Skilovex is brought in for uh, questioning, you know, by the CDF. Ronner is certainly not a, a favored person. My point is, John Paul II, I think, makes it very clear where he comes down. Not, mind you, Garigou Lagrange preconciliar conservatism. John Paul II is a man of the council. He has zero interest in let's go back before the council and, oh, wasn't the council a big mistake? Absolutely not. No, no. He wants to, to recover and interpret the council in the manner of the communio figures. And I think that's one of the ways now to read the entire pontificate of John Paul II is trying to bring the communal vision of things into uh, into life, you know. And he's got, if you want, two wings that tend to go at him. The Skilebex Rahner Kung liberal side and representatives of that old preconciliar conservatism. Neither side's too fond of John Paul II's program. How does Pope Benedict XVI then pick up the mantle? Yeah, I think it's right in line. So Ratzinger, along with Hans Kung, by the way, they were colleagues from Tübingen at the time, were two of the youngest Paridi at Vatican II. Ratzinger was only in his early 30s. It's amazing. I think of it. When I was in my early 30s, I was just finishing my doctoral work and I was beginning my teaching at Mundelein. When Ratzinger was that age, he was a Paridis at the council, writing some of the major speeches, helping to write uh, the documents. Ratzinger is a man of the council. Is he interested in Garigou Lagrange, uh, ahistorical preconciliar Thomism? Absolutely not. Read Ratzinger's writings. What do you find? It's all Nouvelle Theologie. It's all the fathers. It's Bonaventure rather than Thomas, if you want. Uh, Thomas is more conspicuous by his absence in Ratzinger's writings. But they're filled with the, I'd say, de Lubachian, Balthazarian, Nouvelle Theologie spirit. Furthermore, he's right in line with John Paul II. He, he works for him for, what was it, 25 years, right? So when he's elected, I think the program continues very much of the communio-style implementation of Vatican II. So then that brings us to today, during the pontificate of Pope Francis, the landscape of many different theological camps and streams. How do you read our current situation in light of everything that we've just discussed? Is it sort of the fulfillment or culmination? Are some of these camps still alive and moving? Oh, How do you read everything? I think it's still, I think it's still going on. Uh, if, you know, dare I speak more personally here, um, my own theological journey uh, with different stops and starts and turns and here and there, I found myself eventually on this great communio path. I think of my years at the Institut Catholique in Paris when I studied under Michel Corbin, who was a, a French Jesuit, student of de Lubac. And he got me into not only de Lubac, but also, also Balthazar. I began reading Balthazar for the first time when I was in Paris. Um, John Paul II's influence, you know, uh, Ratzinger's influence. And I was drawn then as a theological writer and speaker onto the communal path. Are the two other wings both uh, operative today? You bet. Is there still this kind of, I call it, uh, uh, Hans Kung, Skilebeck sort of Catholic liberalism. Now, this is my own judgment on things that is so open to the culture, it tends to surrender to it, that tends to sell what's really essential to the, the Catholic tradition to accommodate the culture, that is so open to ecumenical dialogue that we lose our sense of, of Catholic identity. Is that wing still there? Yeah, you bet it is. 
And I would say there's been in recent years, especially a revival of the pre-conciliar conservatism represented by Gary Lagrange in the, in the Catholic so-called trad movement, which has had a revival to my mind, unhappily. Um, and I continue to try to walk the, the communio path. By the way, you want to see communio path clearly laid out, get the catechism of 1992. That's not Garigou Lagrange conservative Thomism by any means. I mean, I challenge anyone to find that in the catechism. But it's also not Hans Kung of uh, relativism and liberalism. I think it represents very much this middle John Paul II road. So that's the road I'm trying to walk. And, and just as he got flack from both sides, you know, I get flack from both sides. But I think, to my mind, that's the most reasonable path to be walking today. You've used this term a few times, novel theology, new theology. Can you say yeah. something about what that is, what it represents? Yeah. Well, first of all, it was a term of opprobrium used by Gary Lagrange of the Delubach school. So it's a bit like uh, Gothic there. Yeah, that was first used as a term of opprobrium, this Gothic architecture, you know. Um, then it was embraced. So in the same way, Gargou Lagrange was reading people like de Lubac and Daniel Lu and others, and he said, ah, cette nouvelle théologie, this new theology. What was, what's funny is what's new about it was actually very old, that it went back to the sources. So it's also called in French the aux sources movement, which means to the sources. The Latin for that is ad fontes, they, they call it sometimes. That's, by the way, where the, the word ressourcement comes from. You might have heard that, the resourcing, but sounds better in French, doesn't it? The ressourcement movement was going back to the great sources of the scripture and the church fathers. And that made it new in the minds of, of these more, I'd say, ahistorical Thomas. Um, but that's, that's what's new about it. It's, it's fresh, if you want to say, but it's, it's fresh by being very old at the same time. Well, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. We got one today from Nathaniel in Ohio. He's asking about why philosophy departments seem to ignore Thomas Aquinas and scholasticism. So here's his question. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Nathaniel from Worcester, Ohio, and I wanted to ask why it is that secular schools and departments of philosophy pay little attention to the work of scholasticism and Thomas Aquinas in favor of modern philosophy. Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's been a problem for a long time. Uh, in many philosophy departments, you know, they'll read the ancients, they'll read Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and Plotinus, maybe Plotinus, but they tend then to take a giant leap over Augustine, Boethius, Bonaventure, as a Scotus. No, nothing happened for a thousand yeah, years. Thomas Aquinas, and maybe they'll jump at Anselm for the ontological proof or something. But uh, there's generally a tendency to, to jump, I mean, like thousands of years over these extremely interesting, complex, subtle, deeply philosophical figures. Well, there's a reason for that, because in the minds of a lot of secularized people, they're associated with religion, and religion is the great um, you know, bugbear. They hate religion. And so any association with it is seen as, um, as disqualifying as, as philosophy. That's just a stupid attitude. Um, you know, a, a key figure here, by the way, read Etienne Gilson, 
So Etienne Gilson, famous now as a Thomist commentator, but but he began his career as a young guy in Paris as a Descartes commentator. So he's reading Descartes, the founder of modern philosophy. In fact, many philosophy programs will just begin with Descartes, right? Forget everybody else. Just It begins with Descartes. Well, he's reading Descartes and he's saying, gosh, there are an awful lot of things in Descartes that are not in the classical philosophers. Uh, they're not in Plato and Aristotle and company. Where did they come from? There's all these themes that Descartes obviously is responding to and he's incorporating and he's, he's answering or questioning. Where are they coming from? And that caused this young researcher, Etienne Gilson, to start digging. And what he found was this extraordinary treasure trove of medieval philosophical thought. It helped him understand Descartes. That was the first move. But then once he found it, he didn't go back to Descartes. He stayed there. He said, this is where there's so much of deep philosophical interest going on. Um, I think it's really sad that you're right. A lot of philosophy departments don't get it. And it's the association with religion. I'm, I'm sad to say, but quite sure to say is the reason for that. And it's just stupid and unfortunate. The Gilson story reminds me of Dr. Edward Fazer, one of my favorite philosophers. He was a, a young atheist yeah. philosophy professor doing this whole survey of Western philosophy. He gets to the Thomas Aquinas part and he does what most philosophy professors do. They, they show one page of, of the Summa with the arguments for God, kind of flippantly review them and dismiss them and say, all these are answered. But he said it, it was so unsatisfactory. I thought there has to be more to this. Right. Otherwise, why would so many people accept these arguments and discuss them? So he said, I started doing more digging into the Thomistic arguments, trying to give them a better defense than what I've been giving for years. And that was the first seed of his conversion, yeah. both to theism and to Catholicism. We were just talking before, uh, I won't give his name, but I was watching on YouTube, an interesting uh, series of lectures on, on Kant's Critique of Pure Reason by a, an elderly uh, philosopher. And he says, when looking at Kant's you know, uh, treatment of the God arguments. He said, well, here, of course, Kant totally debunks these arguments. And after that, no one, you know, no smart person takes them at all seriously, except maybe in some Catholic universities. <laughs> and what occurred to me, I mean, first of all, I mean, the incredible arrogance of it, but that uh, look at some of the subtlest and finest spirits that Western cultures ever produced. And I mean, Scotus and Aquinas and Bonaventure and Occam and, and uh, company, uh, Abelard, you know, that these people were deeply interested in and intrigued by or convinced by these arguments. What are the odds? I mean, seriously, think for a minute. And granted, Immanuel Kant, I'll give him complete credit, one of the great philosophical geniuses. But what are the odds that one little guy writing in Königsberg has just absolutely in one fell swoop just got rid of all of that? It's all wrong. I mean, just on the face of it, on the surface of it, like Phaser, wouldn't you be kind of skeptical? Like, that can't be right. <laughs> All right. Well, again, thanks for listening, not just to this episode, but to the past 199 episodes that yeah. we've aired before. I also, Bishop, wanted to mention something exciting coming up. This episode is debuting on October 7th, which means in just a few days, you are going to be in Rome for the canonization of one of your great heroes, John Henry Newman. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, really excited about it. He's been canonized, what, the 13th, I think, of October. I'll be in Rome for that because I was invited to give a paper at Oxford 
on Newman. So I thought, well, as long as I'm, I'm going over to Europe, I'd hate to miss the canonization itself. And frankly, as a, as a bishop, I'll get a pretty good seat, you know, at it. So I thought, sure, I'd love to be present for uh, the canonization of this really monumental figure. So I'm looking forward to that immensely. And then right after that, I fly up to Oxford to give this paper. So Sunday, October 13th is the canonization. A couple days later, we're going to do a live Q&A with Bishop Barron for the Word on Fire Institute. So if you want to talk about Newman with Bishop Barron, uh, that's your chance. The following day, the 16th, is when Bishop Barron's giving this paper on John Henry Newman and the new evangelization from Oxford, from the University Church, where John Henry Newman himself preached when he was an Anglican chaplain. So lots of exciting Newman stuff coming up. Be sure to follow Bishop Barron on social media. We're going to have all sorts of videos and live streaming and photos. So it'll be a great celebration. Well, thanks again for listening. We'll see you guys next week on the Word on Fire show. Thank you.